Matthew chapter 20. And I want to just say three things this morning. I want to say three things, three points, three layers. And um, the first thing is that we need personal redemption, a personal lamb. Personal redemption, and that's something that we need. The world needs personal redemption in a personal way, not in a global way, but in a personal way. Number two, what does it mean that Jesus is our Passover lamb? What does that mean? Uh, What does that mean that Jesus is our Passover lamb, a personal lamb for us? And the third thing I want to close with today is what it means in real time that Jesus conquered our sin. How is it that we can live in victory over sin in a practical way? And so if we turn to Matthew chapter 20, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem. I like that. You know, without getting into preaching about the reading of the text there, isn't it interesting how... We're along the way. We kind of don't know where we're going with God. And then Jesus kind of takes a break through the Holy Spirit and says, See, this is what we're doing. <laughs> kind of really falling on. We don't know what's going on. We're not really even sure how to ask. But suddenly we see, See, Julian is playing the drums. <laughs> it's great having Julian play the drums. And, and um, George, right? George, playing the, playing the bass. Thank you so much. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And he took... The 12 disciples aside on the way, he said to this, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. First thing I want to say this morning is that we need a personal lamb. When we talk about a personal lamb, we first have to ask, why do we need one? If we look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, you don't need to turn there this morning, but we see a very interesting verse at a very interesting time in Israel's history where God spoke to the Israelites that were in captivity in Egypt and said, let every man take a lamb for himself and his family. And when we think about this subject, we have to ask ourselves the question, why is, there a, why is there a need for a lamb? I think that without understanding this topic, we can't fully appreciate what Palm Sunday or what Passover meant. There is a problem in the world today, a problem of sin, and it's the most ignored problem in the world today. And... It's a problem. I mean, it's something that is ignored. It's just ignored, you know. And it's unresolved by society. You know, society, socialism cannot resolve this problem of of global sin. Politics, a political leader can't be the answer to the problem of sin. Education, you can't educate someone out of sin. Uh culture, and even religion. Religion is not able to deal with the problem of sin. And so this, resu- this today stands as the most unresolved, one of the greatest, it is the greatest problem in the world today. Why is it so great? Because sin glitters. It just looks amazing. <laughs> it looks so great that it must be good and wise and enjoyable experience. 
Does that sound like something familiar to you? Genesis chapter 2, right? Here's Eve looking at the tree, and the, and the serpent is speaking to her and saying, uh, this is beautiful looking, and it is something that will make you wise, and it will give you a great experience. And this is what the message of sin is. Sin is a scam. It's just the biggest scam in the universe. Anyone that's ever lived in sin, and I think it's all of us in this room, because we're all fa- fallible individuals, we've all failed, we're, we're gonna, we walk away and we can say one thing. Sin is a scam, isn't it? It's a scam. It's like, it's like eat this awesome apple, and then you're going to be so happy, but then there's no, there, there's no one to tell you about Monday. You know, Monday comes, and you just feel horrible. You feel like you've just been destroyed. Physically, you feel horrible, uh, and, and you just feel like you've just, been, you've just been violated by the world system. And this is what sin does. Sin is deception. And this is why we needed a lamb. Sin glitters. Paul describes his dilemma with sin in Romans chapter 7. You know, I love the honesty of Paul in Romans chapter 7. Here's a five-star general. He's a guy that writes a good portion of the New Testament, and yet he is vulnerable enough to talk about his struggles in his life. This is not just a pastor. This is not just a teacher, Sunday school teacher. This is a this is an apostle, a man of God talking about his struggle with sin. And I'm so glad. Romans chapter 7 is one of the most awesome chapters in the Bible. Why is sin so ugly? This is going to get better. I'm not going to stick on this topic. It's going to get better. It's going to get encouraging. Don't, if this is your first time here, don't feel like, oh, these guys are always talking about sin. Sin is ugly because three reasons. Number one, by definition, Romans 7 verse 13, the law was given that sin would be what? made exceedingly sinful. Sin, the law was given in Galatians chapter 5 that no one could say, I am righteous by my own works. The law was given so that it would be a pointer, it would be a school teacher to us to school us in the school of grace that we need a lamb, right? The law was given to us not to excel in our spirituality by, but the law was given that every mouth would be shut. Every mouth, every single mouth would be shut and that all would understand very clearly by experience that we need a personal lamb. It's amazing like how how this world is so based and how we can be so susceptible to the sway of sin. It's unbelievable how there is so much liberty in our lives to just live in this kind of unconscious or walk in this undefined way that just airs from God's way. I was in, uh, two days ago, we were picking up a new computer, which is that shiny new object over there that Wes is having fun with, and I was there picking it up, and I stopped to get gas afterwards, and uh, thanks to all of you that give and made that possible, it's a huge, it's a huge blessing. And I was at a gas station uh, filling my, gas car, my car up with gas, and like you probably many times, you walk in and you overhear conversations. Isn't it crazy what people talk about? It's unbelievable. I walked into a convenience store, and um, I think it was near where you all live, and uh, I walked in, and, and, um, and there's this lady behind the, the cash register just saying, you know, like, yeah, I, 
I had a problem in my life and uh, children out of wedlock, and I just went through this situation, and I just learned so much out of it by experience that that was a bad experience. And there's a guy on the other side probably flirting with her and just saying and giving his opinion about that experience in her life. And then another woman chimes in and says, well, everybody's got to go through their own thing and kind of learn for themselves, and everybody's got to have their own wisdom. And I was just there paying for my stuff, and I was like, I can't even believe like human nature. We just define what is right and wrong by, by our own experience, don't we? We just like, we just re- redefine things like, well, that's not good because it has a bad effect to us. Or this is just human nature, and this is inside of all of us, where, where it's so easy for human nature to redefine sin by our own law and make sin less sinful. Right? Well, oh, everybody does it. I mean, that's something that, well, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, it's just like, you know, how are you going to escape from that? And, and like we redefine as a human creation that has a beginning and an end. And in God's eternal perspective, we're just, it's like Shakespeare said, we're like a shadow that does its, its part in the play and then disappears and is no more, you know? And we as human, we as human beings in this world, we redefine what sin we we just because of just the conviction and because we don't like when things get specific in our life, we just, we jet. <laughs> and we just re- redefine sin in our life. And we go to Facebook or we go to social media or we go to our buddy or we call up our friends or, you know, go to the bar. And I, I don't go to the bar, but, you know, go there. And that's where I get, you know, that's where I get my counsel from, from my life situations. Because that's human nature. Human nature wants to redefine Sin and make it something less than it really is, and it's so unbelievable how and I, I can't even, you know have you ever had one of those days where you're just in your mind complaining about everybody and everything, you're just complaining about this, you're complaining about that. I'm saying this because I do this sometimes. Complain about this situation, you're complaining about that, you're complaining about this, and and you just get into this negative kind of cycle. I don't feel like I'm picking on you because if if we're all Especially when, especially when you're an organizer or something. I'm not picking on you, Lori, or anybody here. It's like when you organize something, you're just like, a, or when you're not organizing, I don't know, if you're a parent, you're a human being. You're in this place where you're just going through your mind like, ah, oh, this is so horrible, these people, you know, this and that. And we just, or maybe we just so freely, we just like, just open our mouth and we just slay 500 people by complaining about an organization. Just by, you know, we feel sometimes that we can just gossip about unsaved people. Well, they're unsaved. We can gossip about them. I, I, God respects the unsaved as much as the saved. Do you know that? God loves every person. Maybe an unsaved person that doesn't know Jesus Christ as a personal Savior is not a person that lives with the righteousness of God in their life yet by faith. But you know something? Jesus didn't go around slamming the unsaved. We don't see Jesus slamming people. We, the only people we see Jesus slamming are the self-righteous Pharisees. We never see Jesus yelling at the disciples. You don't see Jesus just opening it up and just tearing them down piece, limb by limb. Because Jesus understood the disciples were walking in grace and did not have a righteous of their own. Well, let's just move on. The third reason why sin is just so ugly is because it's... In, and this is so important. And this is going to be a unique, I think... Maybe some of us have not thought of this, but it's antagonistic to our own interest, contrasts with the harmony of nature. And I like how I think Spurgeon put it, sin is mutiny to our own welfare. 
In other words, in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, Ezekiel 18, verse 20, I like this verse. It says, the soul that sins dies. <laughs> wow, big news, right? That's like really, you know, wow, like as if we didn't know that. The soul that sin dies. And I think we're ta- I'm talking to all of us in this room because we are all f- creatures that are fallible. God understands our nature, that we've been made from the dust. In Psalm 51, that we were born with a sin nature, speaking lies from our birth. And so that is why God had compassion on us. You know, God has compassion on you and I today. God has compassion on brokenness. If we're walking in this room today, we're feeling like, I don't know if I'm, such, if I'm the ideal person for what I'm doing, or I don't even know if I belong with these people. You know, sometimes people come to church and they feel this way. I know I do. Come into church and it's like, I don't know if I belong with these people. I am a sinner with a capital S-I-N. And when that happens, we have to remember that God has compassion on us. Does that mean that God compromises with sin? No, because we see that we're going to talk about this in a second, that God had to make a provision to satisfy his justice, because he's perfectly just, so that he could love on the world. So we needed a personal lamb. And this is what, this is what Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to go back to, a text, to the text in a, in a moment. This is what Exodus chapter 12 is saying. When Israel is in the bondage of Egypt, and they are on plague number 9, going on plague number 10, and God says to Israel, take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their father, a lamb for a house. Beautiful words, isn't it? A lamb for a house. This is our this is our Palm Sunday verse. And actually, Palm Sunday is really should be called Passover because many of, our, many of my Orthodox Jewish friends in Canada are celebrating the Passover this weekend, Saturday through Monday. Take every man a lamb according to the house of their father. And it says in verse 23 of chapter 12, the Lord will pass over the door when he sees the blood on it, and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your house. Let's claim that for our families this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's claim that this morning. That You know, I'm putting the blood of Christ on the door. Now I'm getting into the application too soon, but I'm just going to get into that in a second. But let's claim, let's claim that verse. Maybe you're not a parent today of your family. Maybe you're a sibling or a son or a daughter. Let's claim that for our family today, that, that the Lamb of God, this personal Lamb, will be a Lamb for our house because that's what we need. Let's go to the, let's start verse, let's start in, in, in Matthew 20, chapter 21, and we're just going to start reading through the first 11 verses, and I'm going to do this expositionally, and I want to just make comments as we go along on this, and then we'll wrap it up. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Let's start with verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and I had a map for this, and I didn't get here in time to put it up, but I'll have it for you next week. Jesus is moving uh, across, um, uh, across in an east-west direction towards Jerusalem. And as he, as he approaches, he has Mount of Olives on the left, and he's standing on this, on this elevated place. And it's a road that goes from Jericho to Bethany, along the, and it's a Roman road. And it's a 17-mile road. I mean, they don't have cars. They were walking 17 miles. And they climbed about 3,000 feet in elevation. So imagine this as they're going from the road to Jericho on a Roman road down to Bethany. 
Bethany is like the home base for, for Jesus. That's where he's sleeping every night during the Passion Week. He's in Jerusalem. He's ministering. Then he leaves Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, goes across the Kidron Valley, and he's parked there in Bethany where he's camping out with his disciples, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And now he's entering, he's coming towards Jerusalem. This is this last week, the beginning of the last week, the last seven days of his life. Remember, the Jewish calendar is different the way they calculate days, so don't get hung up by evenings and afternoons and mornings uh, when you're reading this, if you're reading it on your own. But they are now, Jesus is about seven, about 3,000 feet elevated, and he can see, uh, he can see the entire, the whole town, or the whole city of Jerusalem. And as he's there, in verse 2, Jesus sent his two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied. I love how Jesus knows exactly what's going on, you know? God has a plan, doesn't he? Jesus is in control. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, okay? A, A mother and a colt with her, excuse me. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say... The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This is amazing, because this is the only record of two things that are happening here in this verse, the two things that are happening for the first time in Jesus' life. This is the only record of Jesus riding an animal. He's preparing to recreate the return of King David to Jerusalem in peace and in humility in 2 Samuel 19 and chapter 20. This is also a similar scene to when Solomon comes into Jerusalem when he is to be throned as king in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38. Also, Jehu, King Jehu, is coming in to Jerusalem. Does this sound... I mean, if you were a Pharisee, and if you're a man or a person of the law, you're seeing all of this happening, and you know exactly what's going on. Jesus was known by the Pharisees. They knew by, by the mouth of Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, we know, all the Pharisees, the scribes, we know who you really are. We know who you are. The second time, this is the second thing that we see mentioned for the first time is the only time in the book of Matthew that Jesus uses the term Lord for himself. It's the second time that Jesus, it's one of the, it's the only first time that Jesus uses the word Lord for himself. I think it's curious that Jesus says, go find this man, take the colt and, 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 the, and the mother, donkey. Uh, one commentator puts it this way, that this guy could have been a believer, that he may have been a believer in Jesus. There were believers that were already in Jerusalem, people that believed in Jesus Christ and they knew who he was. And when they would say, the Lord needs this, oh, okay, yes, whatever I can do to serve the kingdom and serve Jesus Christ, here's the colt and here's the donkey. And so if we, if we move on here to, to, to verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and this is Zechariah 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion. Say to the daughter of Zion. Actually, that's an excerpt taken from Isaiah 62, verse 11. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Here is the king's final and official offer of himself. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem one last time. Uh, he's probably been there three times before. And he is just offering himself to Jerusalem, to the, the whole nation of Israel, that he is their Messiah and King. And in verse 6, disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. 
they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. This is very unique because we know that not only is a sign of riding on a donkey a sign of humility, but it's also a sign in the Eastern world of a person of authority, a person that is a teacher. And it's very unique to know also that Jesus did not sit on the mother donkey, but he sat on the colt. And um, we were at the rodeo recently, and when you sit on a colt that hasn't been broken in, it could be a rough ride. But Jesus just gets right on this colt. That's amazing because, because I think it just shows a picture of Jesus' mastery of the nature of nature and that this colt accepted him without bucking him off. Really unique. Warriors ride on horses. Jesus rides on a donkey. Jesus will come back on a horse in, in Revelations 19, verse 11. But he is coming now as a servant. This is a picture of Jesus' humility. He's, God's not marching into Jerusalem commanding everyone to bow down to him. Jesus is coming in as a servant, as a uh, showing grace to Israel. Isn't this amazing? God doesn't march into our life and just start throwing around orders. This is not the Jesus that we see. God comes in, seated in humility, and he comes in. in and this is like a very, very tense moment. This is like the Passover week in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of tension in, in Jerusalem right now with the scribes and the Pharisees and the government. And who is this Jesus gaining so much popularity? But he comes in seated on a, whor- on a colt. Just incredible. God, it's incredible how much God is in control through just humility. God's not in control through throwing around lightning bolts and killing people as we saw in the Old Testament. This is a new dispensation. This is the dispensation of Christ. This is the dispensation of the introduction of the Messiah to Israel. And we can gain so much of this in God's plan in our life. Jesus rides in a cult. He rides in. And this would have been this was just such a remarkable thing about the uh, humility of Christ. Let's look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These are amazing words and very significant. And I'm sure that many of you have been to many Palm Sunday services. And one of the things that I'd like to do in this service is just to give you some great historical points, but at the same time, just give us some meat that we can take home in our practical lives. On this road, the 17-mile road from Jericho down through Galilee down to down to Bethany, Jesus meets up with groups of individuals that are most likely Galileans. He meets up with these large groups of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem because at this time was a time of pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And as they're going, as they're these Galileans, they don't know what Jesus is, but suddenly they say, hey, wait a minute, isn't that Jesus on the road? And as, and as he's coming down the hill uh, from from Bethpage down into the Kidron Valley, uh, these pilgrims, these pilgrims that are coming, these Galileans and these these Jews that are coming to give um, to bring their lambs for the Passover for the inspection by the priests, meet Jesus on the road. Isn't that awesome? 
And, and, and as Jesus is going on this cult, the, the crowds around him are growing and growing and growing. And they're all singing this song, Hosanna to the son of David, which means not the son of Moses, but the son of David. Because what, David just needed so much grace in his life, isn't it? Like, this is what we rejoice about Jesus, that Jesus wasn't the son of Moses. Jesus was the son of David, who needed so much grace and so much mercy in his life. David is a, is a picture in the Old Testament of a, of, a, of, a, of a grace believer. And so as they're going along, they're acknowledging Jesus as king by spreading their garments on the road before him. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, uh, don't be blown away by all these verses, but I'm just trying to give you a good isagogic background of what's happening here. Jehu, the king, coming into Israel, same situation happening. Not only is this happening on the road through the Valley of Kidron on the way up to the temple, but Jerusalem is also anticipating his arrival. A lot of people are talking about this Jesus in Jerusalem. They're waiting for him to come. And they're singing these praises of Psalm 118, verses 25 and verse 26. Hosanna, the son of David. See, these Jews from a from young childhood, we're educated that when the Messiah comes, this is the song that we're going to be singing. And so they're all singing this song. And as they're walking in, um, there was no doubt that Jerusalem understood that this was their Messiah coming into Jerusalem. Verse 10, And they entered into Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Now, where does Jesus enter? I like maps. I like to look at, I'm pretty technical. I like the way to see how things work. And So I pulled out a map, and Jesus is coming across that Valley of Kidron. Valley of Kidron would soon be filled with the blood of all the Passover lambs. It would be full to the overflowing. But he passes over it. He ascends up to the Temple Mount, and then um, he comes into the Sheep Gate, which is the east gate of the city. He comes in the Sheep Gate, which is just a little bit north of the temple where everyone is bringing their lambs for the priest's approval for their Passover lambs for their home. Jesus comes in this gate. This gate, I'm, I'm imagining, I'm just, just me, but this time of the year, this gate is probably packed with people, with their lambs. Imagine that. All these families just coming, saying, I get to get the priests okay on this so that we can sacrifice this. Remember um, that the Passover lamb was a lamb in, in Exodus chapter 12, that, which was the 10th day of Nisan, which is a Jewish month. Um, each house had to take a lamb, and for three or four days, the lamb had to be just like meticulously inspected. Do you ever, that's going to sound, maybe, I don't know if this is a kosher way to describe, illustrate this, but if you have a dog or a cat, do you ever go through your animal looking for little critters inside? Just, you know, going through the fur and stuff. Maybe you've never done that. Living in Texas, we've had to do that more and more often with our dog. There's lots of little critters here. Going through, I mean, and, and this family got to know the, the, the lamb in such a personal way. Every inch of that lamb was inspected and known and understood and appreciated. And <clears throat> little lambs, kids love little lambs, don't they? I mean, they just became like such an attachment to the family these three days. And on the fourth day, the fourth day, uh, with the approval of the priests, this lamb would be delivered over to be sacrificed for the family, for the house. And so we are at the gate here. Jesus is marching in through the gate. All these people are laying down their, 
their coats, their palms, their tree branches. They are singing this song in Psalm 118. There's a big ruckus. It sounds like a parade is coming into town to the sheep gate. And everyone's standing there with their little lambs. Well, these families are standing there. They're watching Jesus come in on a colt. This is an amazing picture. And what is happening here? This is an amazing, amazing thing. At this moment, Israel is about ready to reject their Messiah. They are at this moment where in, they're about, in the next two chapters, we see that the Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, marching through that sheep gate, which is such, a, such, a, such the right gate for him to come in. He is the Passover lamb. He is coming in. And for the next several days, the priests, the scribes, the people, everyone in Jerusalem are going to meticulously try Jesus in every way. They're going to inspect him. They're going to criticize him. They're going to ask every question under the book. The law is going to do it. Society is going to do it. Education is going to do it. Politics are going to do it. Jesus is going to be examined in every single way. And he's going to be proven that he is a worthy lamb to be sacrificed. And this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ is our Passover lamb. I mean, we are not Jews today. Maybe some of us have Jewish blood. I don't know. But we are probably Gentiles. But Jesus is our Passover lamb. John repeatedly says through the next few chapters and also in his, in his gospel, that the Jewish leaders wanted to eliminate Jesus before the Passover meal began. This Passover meal began at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the 14th day. So the 10th day is when they got the Passover lamb. The 14th day was when they would start eating the lamb. So sometime earlier in the day on the 14th of Nisan, the lamb would be slaughtered. Uh, he would be he would be slaughtered and then he would be eaten. I, I just think that's such an amazing thing that the lamb would be eaten. This just tells me that God doesn't want us to only to worship and appreciate Jesus, but he wants us in John chapter 6 to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, which means an intimate participation in the life of Christ. And this is what we're all about here. This is the kind of church that we want to see happen here. It's not a church, another church that is going to be awesome in every way, like with just a great, um, you know, with just a great uh, presentation, which is so awesome, I love it. But that we would also individually in our individual life every day that we would just eat the lamb, that we would just eat the lamb, that we would just drink his blood. What does that mean? We just do this. We just had communion last week. It just and Michael just told us this last week. It means that when we drink his blood, which sounds terrible, but what it really means is is that we are we are drinking the covenant that God has made with us through the blood, that all of our sins have been forgiven, and that his body, which was broken for us, is our, is our bread in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. It's our bread, and that's our butter. The, these leaders understood exactly what was happening, and now they wanted Jesus dead before the meal began. This is incredible because... The chief priests in the temple were actually hastening and actually implementing the incredible plan of God. What men and what this world means for evil, what people mean for evil in your life, is always going to be converted to something awesome in your life. It's going to be something that you're going to be like, wow, I would have never imagined that this came out so great. 
you know? It's hard to go through now, and it's not something that we appreciate, but it's something that, it's something that God is in full control of in our life, and we can just sit on that colt and just relax and just enjoy the ride. We can just ride with Jesus into, uh, into the amazing scene where he is just doing something awesome. Jesus is our Passover. And then lastly, the third point I want to make tonight, today before we close is that Jesus conquered our sin. This is just the greatest message right here. This is the message of the, of the New Testament. But Jesus conquered our sin and he rose from the dead. This is incredible. And I can't wait till next Sunday to preach this message about our victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered our sin. You know, Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, he was delivered up for our trespasses. What are trespasses? That's kind of an old King James word, trespasses. Sounds like something that do not trespass, like a sign that you see on private property. Well, that's what it means. It means that I'm going into areas in my life that I am not supposed to be going into. And this is usually referring to mental, our mental state. Trespassing is something that we can do in our minds when we, tr- when we, tr- when we cross into those places in our mind that are just so destructive. In verse 25 of Romans 4, he was raised for our justification. Let me just finish with this. Our redemption, our redemption. I want to bring this into like a very practical um, application for us this morning. The sweet clarity of surrender to the cross. We've got to remember in our life that our walk with Christ is not a struggle with sin, but it's just a surrender to God. Let's just get that so clear in our minds that a victorious life with God is not me battling sin and winning or losing. That's not the, that's not the good fight of faith. When we talk about the good fight of faith, it's not you and I beating up sin and sin beating us up it's because Jesus has already done that. Sometimes I think as Christians, we are trying to do what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago by fighting sin Yes, it's a good fight of faith, but it's not me fighting sin. It's me surrendering to that Savior that conquered sin. This is Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the, the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that mean, that I crucify my flesh? That verse has always kind of bothered me, that I crucify my flesh. Like, I love grace and the finished work, but that verse kind of sometimes always, like, how does that fit into the economy of grace? You know, what does it mean that I have crucified my flesh? Something cringes in me when I read that. And I try to understand what it means to crucify my flesh and passions and desires. What does that mean? Well, when you look at this in the Greek, it really becomes clear in the Greek. It's a first aorist active indicative, which basically means that I'm just agreeing with something that happened in the past at a very specific moment that has lasting results. And what is that? It's the cross, isn't it? It's when our Passover lamb was delivered over and crucified for our sins. That's what it means. Those who belong to Christ have crucified, and this, is, this means that I actively, actively, every moment, every morning, Every, every time I sense temptation in my life, I am actively agreeing with something that happened. The aorist tense means a period of time in the past, at some point in the past, Jesus Christ in the past paid for my sins. I just say, you know what? 
My flesh has been killed. My flesh has been crucified. That's what it means to crucify your flesh. When someone says, hey, are you crucifying your flesh this, this, you know, this week, today? You say, yes, I'm, ag- I'm agreeing with the co-crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Romans 6, verse 6. I have been crucified with Christ in, Rome, in Genesis chapter, Genesis, <laughs> Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with him. And that means that my flesh is crucified. And that means that if my, if my flesh has been crucified 2,000 years ago, that means that flesh and sin has no more power over me, and I can say no. Whereas before I couldn't. An unsaved person in John chapter 3, he is in the bondage to his flesh. He can modify his flesh. He can modify his sin. He can call it what he wants to do. He can make it prettier. He can, he can hide it. We can hide it. We can do that. But you know something? Crucifixion means that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross, and I believe in his, in his deity was able to go through every name that was going to receive him as his savior into their life and say, I'm doing this for Johnny. I'm doing this for Steve. I'm doing this for Wes. I'm doing this for Chris. I'm doing this for everybody. I'm doing for this for this person. And I think that Jesus, and this is just my imagination, I don't have any way of theologically proving it, but I think Jesus went through every name of his fold, sheepfold, and he said, and this is the time they're going to do it. This is when they're going to say yes to me. And this is going to be the season. This is going to be the situation. And this is going to be the location geographically. Jesus died for us. And we died with him. And our flesh at that moment has been broke. The domination of flesh has been broken. Jesus has crucified our flesh. Galatians 2 verse 20. So what's the problem? What are we facing? What happens with us during the week? Like tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to come. And we're going to, all of us are going to be faced with even the preacher more so. I, I, have, I have to face it double time more than you do because I'm the guy preaching it, like, right? Teachers have double accountability, right? So I got to face it more than anybody. And we're going to get faced with stuff. And we're going to hear ghostly voices of the past come back to our mind and they're going to haunt us. I know a story of a person, and I think I've told this story before, but her dad was an alcoholic and as she was growing up her dad would say you're going to be nothing you're not going to be a great wife you're going to be horrible you're you fail in everything this was just one mean dad and this dad just like every time would interact with his little daughter would just reinforce failure and just just these horrible things that were just so anti uh the the nature of what the god had created that daughter to be and he was this hopeless alcoholic and he died on, on a hospital bed from cirrhosis of the liver. This man, this man, I was there. I, this man died just a very, very hard death. And yet, this was decades ago. And you know something? This woman, even in the absence of her father, could still hear these voices. You're nothing. You're not going to be anything. You're not going to be a good wife. You're not a good cook. You're not going to be a good mother. And on and on and on. And even though this person was dead, in her life, this her father was dead. The voices continued. The voices continued. And that's what we are dealing with today. The voices of a dead flesh. We are lit, the ghostly flesh. We don't believe in ghosts. I mean, whatever. But the, glo- the flesh has been crucified, yet it speaks from the grave. And it's in there. It's, you know, it's like rattling around in our brains sometimes, you know. Things that people have said to you 
that have hurt you, that have gone deep and wounded and destroyed, and that happens to every person on the planet. By the age of 40, statistics show that the average person has been wounded in some very deep way, and that's life. Whether it happens in the church or not in the church, it's going to happen to us. Whether we fail or someone else fails, and that sin is upon us and that happens to us, but those are ghostly voices that have been crucified 2,000 years ago. How do we deal with that? This is how we deal with it. We just cast it down. And we say, no. <laughs> no way. That's not true. <clears throat> because, and we fill those voices with a new voice in our life. And that's the voice of our shepherd. That's the voice of the lamb. The, the voice of the finished work saying, it's all been forgiven for that person too. You've got to forgive that person. And until we forgive certain people in our life for those atrocities in our life, those voices are going to continue in our mind. And you know something? Those voices are dead because Jesus' blood was shed. And I want to finish with this. We cast those voices down. Those are voices of a stranger. We just say, you know what? I'm going to listen to a new voice in my life. And that's the voice in the garden. That's Genesis chapter 3. Adam, where are you? When you and I are struggling, when you and I are having a hard time, when you and I are facing unsurmountable odds, when we are under pressure, and when we are just failing ourselves. <laughs> Jesus does not want us to be beating ourselves up. Jesus wants us to begin to begin to remember the words of Christ, that you are a virgin, O Israel, thou virgin. What, what, what a paradox. I'm going to talk about this next week. That we are clean, that we are forgiven, that we are not living under our sin anymore, that the motions of sin, which is the emotions of sin in the book of Colossians, can, have, can be removed. That we no longer need to live under that domination of those negative cycles that we've created in our minds. But we begin to confess truth. Jesus, when he dealt with demons, he was never yelling at them. He just quoted verses. Come out of him. That's what he just said. Come out. What is your name? He said, he knew that, he knew that, the, he knew that Legion's name was Legion because... He knew everything. He just wanted his disciples to understand that he knew what was going on. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. It's, our, it's the word that has given us victory. And I want to close with this, that we just, it's not a struggle. It's not me fighting sin. It's not me fighting people, flesh and blood. But it's just surrender to the cross and just say, God, I can't fight this fight. I can't fight this battle. I can't fight it, you know, ever do that. Sometimes we get passive-aggressive. We say, okay, whatever. That's passive-aggressive, and that's not faith. We're just going to say, you know, I'm going to surrender the cross, and I'm going to let God work things out. I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to let the cross work. Because when we do that, the Holy Spirit takes over, and that's verse 25 of, of Galatians chapter 4, and Galatians chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Just walk in the Spirit. Just get filled with the Spirit. Say, dear... Holy Spirit, fill me, quicken me, Romans 8, 11. Quicken my mind in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And I'm not going to be conformed to this world of negativity and sin management and pain management. The, the word management is not in the kingdom of God. It's just, it's just, it's just, um, it is just conquered. All of that's conquered. And so I don't know how many other ways I can put it this morning, but I just want to say that we can live in victory over sin and not have to redefine it, not to have to minimize it. Yeah. Because you're mentioning sin a lot, mm -hmm. and sin is simply the separation from God when we do our own thing, whatever it may be. Right. 
And um, I read a thought this week that in the garden for Eve to focus on that one tree, she had to forget about all the other trees that God provided, right? So she was focusing on the deficiency, the one thing she wasn't allowed to. And the same in our lives. If we focus on our deficiencies of our circumstances, we are separated from the giver. Mm -hmm. But if we focus on the things that we have been given, then we're connected to the Father and we're in unity with Him. Right. So to me, that was just a fresh thought this week. Yeah. And what happens is, is that like the devil's always saying, you can't do this, and he just... He just gets us into tunnel vision, focusing on this one thing that we can't do, and we're forgetting the nine million other things that are just there in the garden for us to enjoy. And and um, sin is defined in Romans chapter 14 for the New, New Testament believer as anything that's not of faith. Anytime I'm not functioning in faith in my life, I'm already in, I'm already, I'm just already error. So, okay. So let's just close here with a word of prayer. And um, I just really love you guys. This is just such a great group of people. I just love hanging out with you. And just know that God has so much for us in the future.